we're first going to read and make observations on the Genesis 22 account. Then we'll ask interpretation questions focusing on how and why Abraham obeyed God, even under such a great text. And then we'll consider how this narrative ties into Jesus's work on the cross and other issues of application. So let's pray before we continue. Our Lord God, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that you, you love us in so many ways. But one of the ways that you love us, God, is you gave us your word and you open our minds to it for those of us who are in Christ. So God, I pray that you would open our minds to understand this passage, to be instructed by it, be changed by it, to apply its truth. And God, I pray that we would, we would walk in lives of greater faith, knowing you, knowing your faithfulness, knowing your love, knowing how you are a rewarder of those who seek you. I pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open your Bibles to Genesis 22. Using the Pew Bible, it's page 20. I still marvel at those very small numbers. But page 20 in the Pew Bible. We're very close to where we were last time in Genesis 21. By Genesis 22, Isaac has grown from a toddler to a young man. He's perhaps as old as 25. The word that describes Isaac in this passage, it means young man. And so it could mean someone who's just become a man, a teenager, or someone who's in his early 20s. So he's a strong man, even at marriageable age. And at this point, just when everything seems to be going really well for Abraham, promises and all that, God comes to visit Abraham with a very striking message. So let's read Genesis 22, starting from verse 1 and going down to verse 19. So follow along with me as I read. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, that is the angel of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, 
Yahweh will provide. And it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Really, just an amazing account. And this all actually happened. Let's start with observations to the text. God tells Abraham to do something very unexpected. Sacrifice your son as a burnt offering on a particular mountain in the land of Moriah. This command is brief. God doesn't say very much an explanation. Though God does take the time to describe Isaac in a couple of different phrases. He says, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. Now, this is some repetition. And we've noted before, times of repetition used in the Old Testament and New Testament is for emphasis. So what is God emphasizing to Abraham by using these phrases? Is it not the preciousness of Isaac? This is your precious son. I know that, but I'm asking you. I'm commanding you. Offer him up as a burnt offering to me. And remember, remember last lesson, we noted how long Abraham had waited for this son of promise. It was decades, even after God had specifically promised a multitude of descendants. It was still 25 years. He was born miraculously in Abraham and Sarah's old age. Isaac was obviously extremely precious to Abraham. He was going to be the means by which God was going to accomplish the promises that God had given to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. Isaac was a key part of that. He said, through Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And as I said, Isaac has grown up. He's reached marriageable age. And yet God unfathomably tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as an act of worship. Why? And this command is made more surprising by how strong God is later in the Old Testament in his condemnation of human sacrifice. For example, Jeremiah 19.5, Jeremiah 19.5, God condemns the people of Judah for sacrificing their children as offerings. And this is what God says, Jeremiah 19.5. And they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it even enter my mind. God says in Jeremiah that he forbid human sacrifices for Israel and for Judah. It was so far from his purpose that he says it didn't even enter my mind. So why does he command Abraham to do it here? And with the son of promise. Could you imagine being in Abraham's place? This command makes no sense. But God tells the purpose of this command to us, the readers, the listeners, in verse 1. What is the purpose? It is to test Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. But Abraham doesn't know. doesn't know that is the specific function of this command. And the text mentions the land of Moriah. Where is this land? Where is the mountain to which Abraham goes? The Bible actually doesn't tell us too much about this place, though it is mentioned another time in the Bible in a very significant way. <clears throat> Listen to what we see written in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. 2 Chronicles 3, 1 says, this is hundreds of years later, 
Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So according to this parallel passage, or this cross-reference, where is Moriah? Well, if it's where the temple is built, it would have to be in Jerusalem, even the Temple Mount. Now, our passage seems to indicate there are multiple mountains in the land of Moriah, though it is significant that Second Chronicles denotes specifically the mountain which the temple is built as Mount Moriah. So it's very likely that the mountain to which Abraham journeys with Isaac is the same mountain, or very close by, the mountain on which the temple would be later built. Now, after receiving this word from God, this astounding, this surprising, this even unthinkable command from God, what does Abraham do in response? He obeys. And notice when he obeys. It says he rose early the next morning. God is stuck ready to go obey God. He takes Isaac, he takes the two young men, he cuts some wood, he gets a donkey, and he heads to Moriah. The journey takes three days. Verse 4 says that Abraham raised his eyes and saw. If you've been with me the last couple of lessons, you might remember what I said previously. Don't look too much into this phrase about raising the eyes. This doesn't mean that Abraham was looking down, that he was sad, that he was, his eyes were on the ground. No, this is just a Hebrew idiom. Hebrew idiom that idiom that just means he looked. He raised his eyes and saw. He lifted his eyes and saw. He looked. It's often used in the Old Testament, usually describing a person noticing something that's important. He looks and sees something that's important. And what does Abraham see? He sees the place. He sees the place of sacrifice from a distance. And once he does, what does he tell his servants? Notice, tells them to stay with the donkey, and he tells them that Isaac and he would go worship and return. We will worship and return to you, he says. Now, if you're with me in that one lesson I did on the significance, the helpfulness, the importance of biblical languages and, and studying them, I might remember there's something special about this phrase, we will worship and return to you. In Hebrew, something that doesn't quite come across in the English translation, I mean, we still, we still get the, the essence of it, but there's a little nuance here. The Hebrew verb used here also indicates a determination to accomplish something. If you want to know the fancy term for it, it's called a cohortative of resolve. Doesn't that sound fancy? Basically, what it means is that when Abraham says to his servants, we will worship and return, he's indicating, I am resolved to do this. I am resolved that we will worship and return to you. Now that is quite significant. That is a bold statement considering what God has commanded Abraham to do. Abraham knows I'm going over there to sacrifice my son, yet I am resolved that we will worship and return to you. Now Abraham and Isaac, they set out to the mountain carrying the necessary materials. Isaac carries the wood, that's a somewhat significant burden. Abraham carries the fire in the knife. What does Isaac notice is missing? Uh, Dad, where's the lamb? And how does Abraham respond? In a somewhat significant phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. They arrive at the proper place in the mountain. Abraham puts together the altar, presumably from nearby stones. He arranges the wood, and then he binds his son Isaac on top of it. And strangely, the text doesn't tell us how Isaac responded to this. We don't hear him say anything. We don't hear him question. There's no record of what Isaac said or did in response to this surprising move from his father. He appears to be silent. And maybe he did, some, he did say something. Maybe Abraham explained it. And we just don't hear it recorded. But the text makes it seem like Isaac is silent. And he submits. So everything's set, Isaac's about to be killed, and this is when God intervenes. Right when Abraham takes the knife to kill Isaac, God commands from heaven, 
the angel of Yahweh, who is God, at least in this instance, God commands Abraham not to harm Isaac at all, and he gives the reason. And what's the reason? For now I know, God says, that you fear God, since you did not withhold your precious son from me. At this point, what does Abraham notice after God halts the sacrifice of Isaac? What do you know? Right behind them is a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. What a coincidence. Of course, that's no coincidence. Abraham kills the ram and he offers it in place of his son. And this providential provision, it becomes the basis of a name for the place and even a phrase passed down to the Hebrews. Abraham called the place Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh as we might also render it. Yahweh will provide is the meaning. The phrase is later passed down to Israel in this way, in the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. It's like a, like a proverb or a saying. Now, after all of this, notice what God reiterates to Abraham in verses 15 to 18. He repeats covenant promises. He says, because you've done this, I'm going to multiply your seed. And he also says they'll possess the gate of their enemies, meaning that they're going to overcome their enemies. They're going to be victorious. He's repeating some things that he said to Abraham before. But you might notice something's a little different here. Why does God say that these promises will come to Abraham? If you look at verse 18, God says, these things will come upon you because you have obeyed me. Because you obeyed me. Now, those are just basic observations. Let's now turn to interpretation. Ask a number of questions here. First, is the Bible an error when God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son. Uh, I mean, Abraham clearly had another son. I mean, we've been reading about it in the previous chapters. Ishmael, hello? How do we explain this statement, your son, your only son? Oh, I don't think it's too hard. Abraham had only one son of promise. Moreover, the other son was sent away and disinherited. But God's not saying, take your only biological son. He says, take your only real son, your essential son. The other one, he's not chosen, and he's been sent away. So take the only son that you have left, the one who is to be your inheritor. Yes, take him, that precious son, and offer him up to me. So this is no error here. Now, what do we make of this phrase? After God commands Isaac to sacrifice, or after God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a test, after Abraham obeys, God later says, Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld your son from me. Wait a second. God is omniscient. He didn't need to test Abraham to know what was in Abraham's heart. So in what sense can God say, Now I know? Well, you won't be surprised at my answer here. This is just like what we discussed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when God said, I'm going to go investigate that city, see if it's really as bad as I've heard? Didn't God already know? Of course he did. But he wanted that knowledge to be displayed in a new way. You see, God knows all things before they happen because he's sovereign. He causes all things to happen. Moreover, God is both in time in every moment of time, but he's also outside of time. He's not bound by time. So God always sees, always knows everything, including Abraham's obedience and Abraham's heart. But God wanted to display what was in Abraham's heart historically. He wanted to display both to Abraham and to every witness to Abraham, even us today, what is in Abraham's heart in a tangible way. God is not bound by time, but we are. Until something happens in history, we can't see the proof of what what is in a person's heart. So God brings about this historical proof through this test. This test 
really is hard evidence. It's tangible, uh, a tangible indication to everyone, including God, as to what Abraham really values. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God judges every thought and intention of our hearts. God will judge us for what is not manifest on the outside. Nevertheless, this judgment of our hearts, even the final judgment of God, it will be based on the works that our hearts do manifest in our lives. Consider Revelation 20, verse 12. It says, describing the final judgment, the dead were judged according to the deeds written in God's books. Why the deeds? Because the deeds prove what's in the heart. Jesus would say his speech, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in another place, he says, God will bring every careless word into judgment. It's not that God doesn't care about our hearts. It's that when God is giving the proof, when he is judging and he says, I'm going to show, I'm going to show your sinfulness. Let me show you your works. They prove what's in your heart. Let me show you your words. They prove what's in your heart. Our works, in a sense, or let me say it this way. Our works are the way in which God knows and proves what we really are. It's the hard evidence, both now and in eternity. So in testing Abraham, God is giving, manifesting the hard evidence of what he already knew. And this was a testimony to God, and it was a testimony to Abraham, and it was a testimony to all of us. So, and I guess that's a long way of saying, God already knew, but he wanted it to be manifest. This is always what God does when he tests, right? He shows us, and he shows others what's in our heart. And he would even do this in his final judgment. Now, here's a bigger question. What is going through Abraham's mind in all this ordeal? Now, we could sympathize with Abraham and think, like, oh, if I was in that situation, whoa, what would I be doing? What would I be thinking? This was really hard. Truly, he was in anguish. We can infer some of these things. We can imagine some of these things. Though the text doesn't tell us directly what Abraham was thinking. However, discovering at least a little bit of what he is thinking is, I think, key to gaining the instruction of what this text is about. We did note a number of details in this passage that give us some indication of what Abraham was thinking. Just to remind you, after receiving this command, Abraham immediately obeys. He gets him early the next morning to go to Moriah. Abraham tells the servants with resolve that he and Isaac will worship and return. Abraham tells Isaac the Lord will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. Once Abraham is ready to kill Isaac, God says he sees and knows that Abraham fears God. Again, that, that looks into the heart. And after it all, Abraham calls the place Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh will provide. What does this indicate? We might at first think that Abraham was merely obeying out of some sort of dismal fear. Oh, I don't really want to do this, but I can't cross God. After all, he's God. I don't know why this is happening to me. Oh, Isaac, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I don't think so. I say there are enough details in this text to know that Abraham was actually acting out of faith. Out of faith, not fear. He was not fearful that God's promises to him and about Isaac would be brought to nothing, would be contradicted by Isaac's death. On the contrary, Abraham was certain that even if Isaac died, even if he was burned up, Abraham would somehow still return to his servants with Isaac. Thus, we should not be surprised when the author of Hebrews offers the commentary on this passage that he does. And you probably knew where I was going with this. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 verses 17 and 19. The writer of Hebrews, he's giving a context, or in the context, he's giving a list of Old Testament persons who obeyed, obeyed God for the sake of receiving a sure but unseen promise. 
And this is what he says, Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendant, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type or in a figure. Now, that's profound. Even if we didn't know the particular nuances of Hebrew, the Hebrew language, like I pointed out in Genesis 22, this commentary in Hebrews 11 makes it so we don't miss the point. Whatever sadness or perplexity Abraham may have felt initially in hearing God's command, Abraham did not offer his son up out of fear, but faith. Abraham believed God, trusted God, he loved God so much that he was not willing to cling to Isaac or to his, his uh, not being put to death. He rather inferred that God would do something that no one had ever seen or witnessed before up to that time in history, a resurrection from the dead. Now, for us, we, we see a number of resurrections in the Bible, and so we say, oh, you know, just another resurrection from the dead. Uh, let's wait a second. First of all, it's really significant if anyone rises from the dead, but it had never happened before. It was never recorded as happening before. And yet Abraham said, you know what? If God promised, it's through Isaac I'll have descendants. And I guess God will have to raise him from the dead. So I don't believe Abraham was being deceptive or uncertain when he told his, sir, when he told his other young men that Isaac would come back or when he told Isaac that the Lord would provide a land. Now Abraham believed that God would do the seemingly impossible to keep his promises regarding the seed through Isaac. It looked impossible, but he had God's promises and he believed. And what do you know? God vindicated Abraham's faith. In a sense, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham's son did die. And in a sense, God brought him back from the dead. It's exactly as Abraham supposed. God had provided an unforeseen means for Isaac to be saved and spared. And that was through this ram. And of course, that was no coincidence. God had specifically provided for that ram to be there. Therefore, Abraham commemorated the place with an appropriate name, a name that gives glory to the faithfulness of God, Yahweh Jireh. Yahweh will provide. Now, let's talk application for a second. Because I know, brothers and sisters, this was written for our instruction too. As spiritual heirs of Abraham, we too are given promises. Sometimes we arrive in situations where it seems that God has asked us to do something strange, even evil, if we're going to obey his word. It seems, or it might seem it's impossible for God to continue to provide for us, sustain us, protect us, keep his promises to us if we obey. But looking at what's written here in Genesis 22 for our instruction, we ought to remember and use the same phrase that the Israelites apparently once used themselves. In the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. Don't forget what God did on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac. God will keep his promises. Whether it's providing for your temporal needs, whether it's actually delivering salvation when you call upon him and repent, or whether it's providing for you to stand up under difficult circumstances or temptation, God will keep his promises to you. He is a covenant-keeping God. And we see that testified in a very clear way with Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. God will bring someone back from the dead before he breaks any of his promises to you. Do you believe that? Now, of course, we must be careful to know what God actually promised us. He's not promised you good health, not promised you a spouse, he's not promised you that your children will be saved, not promised you the latest smartphone or other things. He's not promised you a financial, or he's not promised you financial security, what we would call financial security. He's not promised you a, a big retirement. 
It's not promised to you that you won't ask, have to ask your brothers and sisters for help or for counsel or for encouragement. But what has he promised? He's promised to meet every true need of yours, both physical and spiritual. And he's promised to do so in the perfect timing and in the perfect way until your time on earth is done and he brings you to be with himself. Just remind you of some verses that say the same thing. Matthew 6, 32 and 33. It's the second part of Matthew 6, 32 and 33. Jesus says, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Isn't that what Abraham did? He didn't cling to anything in this world. He offered it up freely to God because he loved God more than the things of this world. And he believed that God would vindicate his trust. And God did. Jesus says we can do the same because we too have a heavenly father. Philippians 4.19 additionally says, Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And most importantly, for those of us who are in Christ, God has promised us to be our God, to bring us to be in heaven with him and bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. He's promised to give himself the glory that he is worthy of. And that means that he's promised to always do us true good. Revelation 21.7, just to give one more verse. Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes, this is Jesus speaking, He who overcomes will inherit these things, all the blessings that are described there. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So are you believing in the promises of God like Abraham? I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying this to encourage you. Do you believe? Don't you see that you can believe? Brothers, sisters, we can believe. We can have the kind of faith that Abraham had in God. He's a man just like us. But he had the same God that we do. So do you believe? Does your life testify that you, you trust God like Abraham did? Or have you concluded that God is not able to keep his promises to you? Do you believe that God will do the miraculous before he breaks his word? Or is the pain of being tested as to whether you really believe too much for you? Too much for you to wait around and see whether God will be faithful. You've probably had the experience in your Christian life of wanting to believe God, and then not believing, and then God provided anyways, and you say to yourself, why didn't I believe? Why was I so fearful? Why was I so anxious? God is patient with us, isn't he? But he wants us to progress. He wants us to move from that lack of faith, that weak faith, to a strong faith, a joyful faith that walks, in God, walks with God in true trust. We can do that by the Spirit of God. Don't let testing scare you off from clinging to God. It's been observed that trials can do one of two things. Trials and testing. They can drive you away from God, or they can drive you to God. Just depends on your faith. But look at how Abraham believed God. He was vindicated. He was blessed. The same thing for others we've already looked at in the scriptures. Job. He believed God. He was vindicated and he was blessed. Noah, same thing. Abel, same thing. And many others in the text to come. These are all testimonies that we can believe in the Lord, obey him, and we'll receive his reward. I'll say one more thing. When it comes to believing God, waiting on God, don't wait until you feel like it. You say, ah, you know, I just feel, I feel like I can't believe it. Well, remember, the flesh is fighting against you. So don't wait to obey God until you feel like it. Call on God, trust God until you feel like it. Because the flesh never will. Our feelings need to be informed by the truth. And we can believe and obey despite the, the feelings of the flesh. But God will always provide.
Now, let's turn to another question. How to explain verse 18? I think I saw some hands there, so hang on to your thoughts. I'll come back to them. So verse 18 says that God blessed Abraham because Abraham is demonstrated righteousness. Yet in Genesis 15, God showed through a covenant ceremony that God was taking unilateral responsibility for keeping his promises of blessing to Abraham. That is, God promised to bless Abraham regardless of Abraham's performance. Abraham didn't walk through, didn't say, if you keep the covenant, Abraham, then I'll bless you. That's not what Genesis 15 demonstrated. But here, God is quite clear. He says, because you've obeyed me, I'll bring all these blessings about to you. Wait a second. Which is it, God? Are you blessing Abraham because he is righteous or because you simply promised to bless him? How do we reconcile these two truths? In a previous lesson, I already alluded to what I think is the explanation of this. It's not an either or. It's a both and. In God taking unilateral responsibility to bless Abraham, he also determined to make Abraham righteous, therefore allowing God to bless him. We actually see this same sort of thinking in Genesis 18. You just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible. Genesis 18, look at verses 17 and 19. This is a passage we didn't look at before specifically. This is when God is on the way to Sodom to investigate and judge. He says to Abraham in Genesis 18, verses 17 and 19, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So covenant promises. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that... Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Hmm. Notice a very important sequence in these verses. Verse 19 says, for, I've just mentioned covenant promises, for how these things are going to come about. The reason I will make Abraham into a great nation and a blessing on the earth is because I have chosen him. Part one. I'm going to bless him because I've chosen him. For what have I chosen him? Part two, I have chosen him to obey me and to teach his descendants after me to keep my way and to do righteousness and justice. Now, what is the point of causing him and his descendants to love and obey God? Part three, so that I may bring about the promise of my blessing. You see the sequence? God chooses and he chooses unto obedience and that obedience results in blessing. You see, God in his very nature is a rewarder of the righteous. So for God to promise someone a reward with a, or to promise unilaterally salvation level blessing, God then must make that person righteous. And isn't this really just the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? You know, you sometimes hear eternal security articulated in this way. Once saved, always saved. You believe that's all that matters. Doesn't really matter how you or it doesn't doesn't matter how you live your life after that. You can continue to live for God or you can fall into sin, that doesn't really matter. Well, a better articulation is to say, whomever God saves, whomever God calls, whomever God elects, they are kept by God from turning against God, and so they will continue to follow God. Not perfectly. But generally, their life will be one of obedience and seeking God. That is, they will persevere. That is why their salvation is eternally secure. And that is why their eternal reward does not fail. Truly, salvation belongs to the Lord, as Psalm 3.8 says. In love, he is responsible for every part of salvation and therefore must receive all of the glory. So think for yourselves. Your righteousness is gaining for you a reward from God. But the reason you are righteous is because God made you positionally righteous in Christ and because the Spirit is making you practically righteous in your life, just like God was doing with Abraham. 
We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, such great verses to emphasize salvation is by faith or by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. What does the next verse say? Ephesians 2, 10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You do, this, do you see the sequence? You're not chosen because of your works, but you're chosen unto works. It's all of God. God's the one. His choice is what saves. This is grace that saves. But when he saves, he draws you unto holiness, and therefore he draws you unto blessing. It's not your righteous life, it's not your holy living that saves you. It's not your holy living that obtains for you salvation. No, it's God's gracious choice. Nevertheless, his choice will result in you living a holy life. So just by way of application, ask yourself, are you conforming to this design of God? You say, he's chosen me, and he's chosen me to follow him, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of faith, to live a life of obedience. Am I doing that? Am I walking worthy of the salvation calling with which I've been called, Ephesians 4.1? Or do I resist the Spirit as he directs me continually towards sanctification and obedience to his word? Now, one other question before we finish up today. Actually, let me pause here. Questions so far? I saw some hands before. I don't see any hands now, so. Okay, well, let's ask one other question. And it's the one I alluded to at the beginning of this lesson. How do we see a foreshadowing of the gospel, saving gospel of the, the word of Jesus Christ? How do we see a foreshadowing of that in this episode with Abraham and Isaac? Now, some say, and the answers in Genesis will be included in this number, that what we see in this passage is, or with Isaac specifically, is a type of, of Christ. Isaac is a foreshadowing, even a direct foreshadowing of the person and work of Christ. Isaac's sacrifice by Abraham points to the father's own sacrifice of his son, Jesus, in the future. And it is notable there are some remarkable parallels between the two parts of history. Notice comparing Isaac and Jesus, both were born miraculously. Both were considered the only sons of their fathers. Both were to be put to death by their fathers. Both deaths were to be accomplished as sacrifices, just like that of a lamb. Both persons were responsible for carrying the wood to the place of their sacrifice. Both deaths were apparently voluntary. Can't, we, again, we don't get too much of what Isaac was thinking. And both were offered as sacrifices in the land of Jerusalem. So is this a direct foreshadowing? Well, let me advise caution. If you've been in my class before, you won't be surprised by that. It's worth noting that no New Testament author ever makes the connection between Isaac and Christ, even though they had ample opportunity to do so. New Testament apostles, the writers of the New Testament, they'll talk about Jesus as the Passover lamb, talk about Jesus, that's fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And they'll even talk about Abraham as a model of faith, especially in this passage where he obeys God's command to sacrifice Isaac. But they never discuss Isaac's sacrifice as a type or foreshadowing of Jesus's work on the cross. I mean, come on, apostles, isn't it obvious? Didn't you get the picture? I think this fact should give us some pause before we say that God intended Genesis 22 to be a foreshadowing of Christ's passion, or at least a direct foreshadowing. Because we don't want to say that God was intending to say something that he wasn't actually saying. Moreover, we should note there are some differences, some important differences between what Isaac experienced and what Christ would experience. These are often overlooked when one is looking for types. For example, Isaac acted without full knowledge of what his father was doing. I mean, he's asking on the way, uh, where's the lamb? But Jesus knew perfectly from birth what his mission was. He was always God. He, he knew why he had come. 
Isaac's sacrifice, moreover, was not made with reference to sin, any sin. God doesn't say, hey, offer up your son Isaac as a sin offering or because of your sin. No, there's no mention of that here. It's an act of worship. There's no mention of sin. But clearly, Jesus' sacrifice has much to do with sin. But the biggest difference of all between Isaac and Christ is, of course, that Isaac wasn't actually sacrificed. At the last moment, God intervenes. What's provided in Isaac's stead? A ram, a male lamb. Doesn't that sound like substitutionary atonement? One dying in the place of another? And isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus is our substitute. So if we're looking for a parallel to Jesus' work in Genesis 22, isn't it the ram and not Isaac? Doesn't Isaac actually represent maybe sinners? But how could Isaac and the ram be types at the same time? So I would propose, and there are other things I could say about this, but I propose that there's a more indirect connection between Genesis 22 and the cross. I do believe there's a connection. Don't get me wrong. Rather than seeing the offering of Isaac as a direct foreshadowing of Jesus' work on the cross, I think it's better for us to see the offering of Isaac as an example of a basic but fundamental gospel principle. That is, Yahweh will provide what man needs. Yahweh will provide what man needs, even if it's a sacrifice. In Abraham's time, he needed the provision for God to spare his son. But all people since Adam need a provision that we might be spared from death, from sin, from the wrath of God that is due sin. And since the fall, God had promised to make such provision. You remember what God said to the serpent, Genesis 3.15? From the seed of the woman will come one and will crush your head. That's an announcement of victory against the serpent and against what he did. And to Abraham, we've been seeing that God says, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is even rearticulated in this passage. God is saying, there is provision for man that I will make in the future. And we're going to keep seeing those types of promises as we move through the Bible. And even in the New Testament, we know the Christmas passages of the New Testament somewhat well. You remember what Zacharias says at the end of Luke chapter 1? I'll just paraphrase. But basically, when his mouth is opened, when he's no longer miraculously mute, he declares, God is fulfilling all the promises that he gave in the past, even back to Abraham. Because look, Messiah is coming. God's going to redeem and save his people. God's going to provide what man needs. And John the Baptist described very well what man needs. When he identified Jesus in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Christ came, he was a surprising fulfillment of that proverb passed down to the Hebrews. In the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. In Abraham's day, they didn't know exactly what needed to be provided. But God did. What needed to be provided was a sacrifice for sin. Even on a mountain of Jerusalem. Speaking a little bit figuratively here, on Mount Zion, on Golgotha's hill, God provided for man's greatest need. The payment of the sin for those who belong to God and the opening of a way into his holy of holies. And this fulfillment of promise, it didn't require just one miracle, but many. God sent his son to become a man, to be born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died for every sin of his elect. He was buried for three days. He rose again on the third. And he forever secured for his own people freedom from God's wrath and entrance into God's intimate and enjoyable presence. That amazing provision that we know as those who belong to Christ, that provision that we know by faith, it was even foreshadowed in Abraham's day. Because God was testifying in that moment of interceding for Isaac and for Abraham. He says, I will provide. I'll provide to bring my promises to pass. I'll provide what you need. I've got a ram. 
you know, you can, you can see some parallels here. I've got a ram. It's coming. It will be offered. We're going to keep seeing these things as we move through the Old Testament. God saying, I'm going to provide. So we've seen today that the kind of, we've seen today two main things, I hope just to reiterate to you. We've seen today the kind of faith that passes even the ultimate test and is rewarded. But we've also seen the promise of ultimate provision for mankind, even testified on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. Questions about what you've heard today? Yeah, Mark. Or, I'm sorry. It is Mark, right? Twombly? Okay, sorry. Okay, good question. I, I missed I missed the first part of it, but uh, I think I got it. So Hebrews 11 says he is received back from the dead as a type. So in what sense is Isaac a type? I think there we need to understand the word type a little bit differently. Actually, a different translation doesn't use the word type. It says, uh, I believe the ESV says, figuratively speaking. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is not that Isaac is a type of Christ, but he's saying that in a way, Isaac was brought back from the dead. We say, well, isn't that just like Christ? Doesn't that make him like Christ? I, I think there are enough differences between Isaac and Christ to say that Isaac, I wouldn't identify Isaac as a type. I think the writer of Hebrews is just saying, figuratively speaking, Isaac did come back from the dead. I should mention this too, when it comes to types. Actually, there's a lot we could say when it comes to types. People define types a little bit differently. Uh, so that's part of the issue. But one thing I, I want to point out is that if you're looking for parallels to Jesus in the lives of people in the Old Testament, you're going to find them everywhere. Why? Because Jesus is a perfect example of righteousness. And anybody who does anything righteous in the Old Testament is going to be like Jesus, right? I mean, if you think about it, we could do the reverse today. Are Christians types of Jesus? Well, yeah, because they're followers of Jesus. So we're going to be doing a lot of the same things that he did. Or... I like to talk about in our class the idea of gospel principles. We see gospel principles throughout the Bible, even the idea of sacrifice or the idea of, of God providing. Why do we keep seeing these things throughout the Bible even before we get to Jesus? Well, because God is God. Because of who he is, he does certain things, and he's, he doesn't change. He's a consistent God. So when we get to people like Isaac or we get to people like Joseph, when we get to Joseph, I'll probably again mention like, oh, there's tons of parallels between Joseph and Christ. But there are some differences too. Why are there so many parallels? I don't think it's because Joseph was meant as a direct foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. I think it's just because Joseph was a man who lived righteously just as Jesus did. And anybody who, do, who does that is going to be like Jesus. So that's why I advise some caution when it comes to identifying types. The other thing too to keep in mind, even if you if you do want to say a type, you want to want to talk about people or, or things, the Old Testament being types that are not directly identified by the New Testament authors, which is kind of the conservative position that I would take. Don't or beware of letting that kind of analysis prevent you from seeing what the passage is actually about. If we start thinking about, oh, you know, is Isaac a type of Christ? And how is he a type of Christ? And what does that say? We kind of miss the whole point of what Moses was writing, which is, look at the faith of Abraham. Look at the kind of faith that you are to have. There's a, there's a reason why the New Testament authors keep pointing back to Abraham and, and, what, and the life of faith that he had. And he said, look, believers, this is the way righteousness before God always is. This is the way salvation always has been. And this is the kind of faith that we are to live. I know some of you might be familiar with the, something called the Christocentric hermeneutic. It's the idea of, hey, if all the scriptures are about Christ, shouldn't we be finding Christ in, in various passages of the Bible, even ones that don't mention him specifically? Now, it's true that there are prophecies and there are true types of Christ in the Bible. But one danger of the Christocentric hermeneutic is that it, it obscures the author's original intent of a passage. 
you can, for instance, you can go to David and Goliath and say, oh, you know, David is like Jesus and Goliath is like our sin and Jesus slays our sin and he gives us rescue. Well, if you start thinking and interpreting according to that way, you miss what God was actually demonstrating or what God was originally demonstrating and communicating in that passage, which is that no, no physical strength is too great for God to overcome. God will deliver. God will bring the victory. What does David testify in that passage? When I defeat you, they'll know that there is a God in Israel. And other passages say, the battle belongs to the Lord. He doesn't need strength. He doesn't need weapons. And that's a, that's a timeless gospel principle. So those are just some of the thoughts that, that I have when it comes to types. We want to be careful. Uh, so just to summarize a little bit what I said, there's going to be a reason why there are parallels between Christ and various people throughout the Bible because of the nature of what a righteous life looks like. But also, we want to be careful that we don't miss the originally intended point of a passage as we look for foreshadowings or parallels of Christ. I recognize, yes, the Bible is not just the Old Testament, and we have a fuller view of redemption now that we have a New Testament. But I think that if we, if we start looking for, for too many parallels, we can miss the original intent of the passage. Roy, I saw your hand. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, thanks for sharing that, that comment, Roy. I think that is true. And I think that's another thing that makes us want, that makes, I can see why, why, we, why we see types. And that is because there's a remarkable consistency and unity to the Bible. God does act a certain way through history because it all is tied together. And I think you're totally right, Roy, talking about salvation by faith and how um, Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision, all those things. They, they go right with what the New Testament says. And you're right, that, that just testifies to the supernatural nature of the word. Man would not be able to create that unity in books that are so separated from one another by time, by place, by author. And certainly, the Bible does not glorify man like the scriptures of many other religions do, even all other religions. And we'll see the, see the same thing when it comes to Israel being made slaves in Egypt, and this is not a glorious history, at least for man, but it is a glorious history for God, who shows himself to be the redeemer of man. I mean, you're right, that totally testifies to this being the word of God and not the word of man. Well, thank you. That's it for this week. We have one more lesson on the life of Abraham. We're kind of transitioning out from Abraham next time. We're going to look at how a bride is secured for Isaac uh, by Abraham and by Abraham's servant. That'll be another great testimony to the faithfulness of God and how he 
is continuing to work in history to bring about his promised provision, the ultimate provision of Abraham's seed, a saving Messiah. So I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this word. What a wonderful testimony of your faithfulness, a wonderful testimony that you will provide. You did provide our ultimate need in Jesus Christ, uh, a sacrificial lamb for sin, our great Savior. But you also provide for every need of our lives, even when it looks impossible, even when it looks like it can't happen. Would you do that? So help us to walk by faith. Help us to have the kind of faith that Abraham did. He's not special. But, Lord, he and many others in the scriptures, they show us that we can believe you, God. So we ask you, God, grant us that faith. We know we're responsible to believe. We're responsible to obey. But we ask you to bring about those, uh, that belief and those works of righteousness which you've already ordained for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I'll see you next time.